Good morning, friends. I must say that even though you can see me and I cannot see you, I preach this morning with your faces and your families in mind. So with that, allow me to say good morning to you, Carrie and Don. Good morning to the Weiringa family, to Lindsay, to Caroline, to the Hammers, to the Bikers, to the Woodwards. I hold you in heart this morning. And even if I did not say your name, so many of you have been held in prayer by myself, by Delwyn, by our lead team, by our staff, as we remain expectant for what God might do in our midst together. Speaking of expectation, let's begin this morning by taking a look at this photo. Here's your challenge. Find the toothbrush. Maybe put in the comments when you found it. Here's the deal. Most people will spot the toothbrush on the counter. If you spotted the toothbrush on the counter, great job. But completely miss the larger toothbrush under the mirror. Did you catch them both? If you didn't, you're in good company because we do this all the time, don't we? We miss things that are right in front of our faces. Why does this happen? According to a study published in Current Biology a few years ago, people have a tendency to miss objects when their size is inconsistent with their surroundings. The study goes on to report that what we pay attention to is largely determined by our expectations of what should be present. Without expecting something, we're unlikely to pay attention to it. And when we are not paying attention to something, we are surprisingly likely to not see it. Friends, this phenomena is one thing when it comes to our keys, or suddenly seeing a car that we just bought everywhere on the road. But what about when it comes to seeing God in the age of pandemic? When it comes to figuring out where God is as we wrestle with our back-to-school plans, my family included? What about when we're trying to find him in our family feuds and our marriage meltdowns? What about when we're wrestling with anxiety and depression and loneliness and a diminishing bank account? Is God in our midst or have we missed him? Church, let me encourage us this morning. God is at work. Not just out there in our world, but right underneath our noses. And if there ever were a time to be sensitive and awake to what God is doing and how God is speaking, it's now. Because the world, my world, needs good news. The world needs the good news. But as we've discovered throughout the first verses of John 10, there are so many competing voices that are begging for our attention and our focus. God is at work, but it's incredibly easy to miss him. So what must we do to ensure we don't miss what God is doing? What must we do in such tumultuous times to ensure we don't miss him even when he's right under our noses? 
These questions bring us to the final verses in John 10 as we continue in our Messiah series this morning. Now, heads up, we're walking through a significant amount of background material to set the stage, so hang with me. First, we have to talk about the setting. We find ourselves in the temple at the time of the festival of dedication that's mentioned in verse 22, otherwise known as Hanukkah. This is not a throwaway piece of information. We have to understand why this festival was so significant in order to see what exactly Jesus is doing here. I'm so grateful for my friend and New Testament scholar, Gary Burge. We had a riveting conversation about Hanukkah and this festival. And so here's a brief overview based on our conversation. The festival of dedication was an eight-day celebration that marked the cleansing of the temple after Judas Maccabeus had won it back somewhere around 167, 165 BC. You see, there were two priests, Jason and Menelaus, and they had formerly given the temple over to the Greeks who subsequently profaned the temple. I mean, they sacrificed pig's blood, for goodness sake. They erected an altar to Zeus. It was completely desecrated. So in the Hanukkah story, Judas Maccabeus gets into the temple. He discovers that stuff is missing, weeds have grown up, and he restores and he rededicates the temple to its original purposes. This is the literal meaning of Hanukkah, consecration or dedication. Hold on to that definition. So Hanukkah is about the celebration of God's temple, its rededication to its rightful purposes. But it's also about identifying true versus false leaders. About identifying correctly who's doing the work of God and preserving the work of the temple and who is not. Because remember, the temple was initially given over by two priests. So let's come back to John 10. The Jews who are there celebrating the festival of dedication, Jewish leaders included, have asked Jesus if he's a Messiah. Jesus tells them, I've told you already, but you don't believe me. That's in verse 25. Let's pause here. Let's pause here to notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't try to win And here's why. He doesn't say, yes, I am the Messiah, because then he'd be playing into their expectation for a Jewish political or patriotic savior. He doesn't say, no, I'm not the Messiah, because then he's undermining his mission given to him by God the Father. Jesus actually does more than answer their question about whether or not he's the Messiah. Because remember, the Messiah in Judaism wasn't divine. Moses to the people of Israel was a Messiah. Jesus doesn't try to win or align himself with these leaders' thought processes or arguments. He wants to make a higher claim. He makes a claim to divinity. Look at verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. Now, this infuriates the Jews, particularly the Jewish leaders, because he's claiming to be God. 
This is why they want to stone him for his blasphemy against their monotheistic religion. And here's how Jesus responds. He calls us to our second important piece of background. First, we've talked about Hanukkah, but now take a look at his response. Is it not written in your law? I have said you are gods, in quotations. If he who called them gods, to whom the world, to the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken. What about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son, in quotations. That's verses 34 through 36. Let's clear one thing up right now to avoid any confusion. What Jesus isn't saying is that every man and woman can claim to be God. No, the law he's referencing has roots in Psalm 82. Here's what we need to know about that Psalm. This was a really famous and well-known Psalm amongst the Jews because it highlighted their special identity as God's people. Remember back to Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 when Israel's identity was established as royalty? The great king adopted them as their father. They were his treasured possession, a holy nation. Israel proclaimed that they would do everything the Lord had said, that their actions would be evidence of their identity. God is addressing the judges and the leaders of Israel, not pagan gods here. What does God say to them in the psalm? about their leadership and what it should look like. Look at these verses from Psalm 82. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. I said you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. So let's go back to John 10 again. Jesus here is critiquing Jewish leadership by using their scriptures correctly suggesting that there are earthly leaders who have compromised their responsibilities when it comes to administering justice, as is outlined in Psalm 82. He is suggesting that if you leaders really identified with God, you'd follow me. But remember what he told, him, told them earlier in John 10, you are not my sheep. If you were, you'd know my voice. But instead, here you are, leaders, threatening to stone me. Look at verse 36. The one who the Father set apart. The one who the Father consecrated. This is where our two pieces of background, Hanukkah and Psalm 82, intersect. Jesus is telling his audience, I'm not just one of the true leaders who rededicated the temple that you celebrate on this feast. I'm not just a good man with lots of followers that you learned about in vacation Bible school. I am the temple. 
I am the rededicated place where God meets humanity and creation. I am renewal. I am evidence of his will. He's saying, I am God. Remember what John in his gospel said in chapter one. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the evidence of his works, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Here the Jews are ready to stone the rededicated temple ready to destroy the one through whom God the Father intended to reveal his will here on earth. The irony, they were ready to destroy the rededicated temple on the festival of dedication. The embodiment of the renewal they were celebrating was right under their noses and they missed him. Friends, I long to see God meeting humanity in creation. Not just out there in the land of the headlines, but right here. In our home, in our adoption, in my body, in the streets of Grand Rapids, in our government, in my kids' schools. I long for Emmanuel to heal what we have broken, to mend what we've divided, to make Mars Hill Bible Church a beacon of light that does not settle for simply resting on the right side of human arguments, but that proclaims and reflects the higher claim of Jesus Christ. Question for you this morning. Where are you aching? Where are you longing to see God's revelation and renewal? As you consider that, let me issue us a warning and an invitation from these final verses in John 10. First, the warning. If we are going to bear witness to the work of the good shepherd and establish ourselves as part of his flock, we have to train our ears to resist corruption. Hanukkah is a warning festival it in part reminded the people of God to resist those leaders who were not committing themselves to the dedicated work of the temple. We said this in other weeks exploring this chapter, but I'll say it again. There are so many voices. If we're not discerning, if we are not being led by the Spirit of God, we will end up standing with those who corrupted the temple. We must be careful to look at what Jesus did and what he said. He says, believe the works. The works you see will bear witness. But let me also offer this. This does not mean we do away with leadership. I love what Tim Keller says in a recent article he published. He says, rule and authority are not intrinsically wrong. Indeed, they are necessary in any society. But while not ending the binary, neither does Christianity simply reserve it. It does not merely fill up the top rungs of authority with new parties who will use power in the same oppressive way that is the way of the world. Because it is rooted in the death and resurrection of Jesus, Christianity neither eliminates 
nor merely reverses the ruler-ruled binary. Rather, it subverts it. When Jesus saves us through his use of power and only for service, he changes our attitude toward and our use of power. We must not only believe what a leader says, folks. We must also look at the works. The works will bear witness. We must look at one's use of power, one's submission in service. And if you're wondering, what does this actually look like to resist corruption? Two ideas for you. The first is to go to the margins. Jesus has this conversation with the Jews at the temple, and he ends up leaving. He crosses the Jordan. He goes to the people on the outskirts. There was a period of time in high school when I spent time here in Michigan. And I spent a few days with other students at the time. And we put on a summer camp for kids whose parents were incarcerated. And I remember during those few days in Detroit, I met a girl named Jade. Jade's parents were in jail and she was being cared for by another family member. And as we put on crafts and activities for the kids, as we took them on field trips, on their first boat rides and to the zoo, I really felt a connection with her. And I saw her as more than just her circumstance dictated. I remember one particularly meaningful moment where Jade and I were sitting on the bench at the zoo and she looks at me and she says, Ashley, I don't have a mommy right now. Will you be my mommy? And I remember as a 17-year-old, with everything in me, my heart melding toward hers. Because I couldn't be her mom, but I held her life so tenderly, and I knew she was precious. I knew she meant something to the heart of God the Father. There's something hap- that happens, church, when we go to the margins, when we spend time, when we create relationship with those who have lesser heard voices in our society, who have lesser known stories. So my encouragement to you is to put your life in the same places where Jesus put his. Even in this time where we are socially distanced from one another in many ways, what might it look like for you to go intentionally to the margins and engage your life with someone else's who is either not as represented as you or is not as known and heard. A second idea is to appeal to the highest claim. This means not settling for merely winning an argument or playing into the hard lines we've drawn, as we saw Jesus do with the Jews at the temple. What has Jesus already told us about himself? Who can we proclaim him to be with our words and actions in the way of belief? Friends, this is why it's so important to spend time with him. We must know what he did and then choose to believe that what he's done is enough. We must appeal to the highest claim about Jesus and his life here on earth, being one with the Father and doing the Father's will. So that's the warning to resist corruption in our day and age. But the second is an invitation. We must retain the story. We must have the mission of Jesus Christ in view at all times. 
it must be etched on our hearts, lest we forget it for a lesser one. If we don't know the mission of the Father, we might think that we are witnessing and viewing the right work. So this week, what would it look like to reread Psalm 82? To look back through where we've been in John's gospel. To really take note of who Jesus spent time with and who he advocated for. Why he said that he came. This month is a month that I love. I love August because it's our wedding anniversary month. This is a picture of Dellen's and my first look at the Drake Hotel in Chicago. And here's what's funny about our wedding. We have such fond memories of the actual celebration. It was such a fun day with family and friends. But what I love about our wedding on the other side of getting married is how interested our kids in, are in our marriage. They ask to watch our wedding video all the time. Just recently, we gathered in our living room on the floor and popped open the laptop and we watched the entirety of our wedding video. Brooklyn especially loves talking about our marriage and our wedding. But it's interesting because even though we don't just talk about our wedding on August 30th, our kids now know why mommy and daddy are married. They know what our marriage stands for because they've retained the story. It excites them. It interests them. It drives their curiosity. They know it by heart. They engage it again and again so that if anyone were to try and tell them otherwise, they wouldn't be so easily swayed. The story that they know helps set their expectations as to what love is and what love looks like lived out. Friends, it's possible to know God. It's possible to know of God. It's possible to encounter God and still miss him, even when he's right under our noses. Why? Because as we learn from the field of cognitive psychology, what we pay attention to is largely determined by our expectations. And the stories we retain set our expectations for how we live. If the greatest story we live out is an expectation of a political savior, we'll miss the Messiah and his deity. If the greatest story we live out is an expectation of success and gain, we'll miss the Messiah in his humility. If the greatest story we live out is an expectation of our own comfort, we'll miss the Messiah in his suffering. When we retain the right story, we live out the right expectation, following his voice and paying attention to his works in the world. So how does John 10 conclude? In the end, Jesus is not stoned in this encounter. He escapes their grasp. The good shepherd leaves and the Jews, the leaders included, didn't follow him. They missed him when he was right there in front of them. He found those who believed on the outskirts and many people came to him. Look at verse 42. They said, though John never performed a sign, 
all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, on the margins, on the outskirts, many believed in Jesus. Those who believed, they resisted corruption. They had retained the story that began with John the Baptist. They knew it and therefore could see with their very own eyes that Jesus's work was true. So two ideas as we end, a question. Which of these two charges do you feel led to commit to as we head into fall? Perhaps you hear resist corruption and you are compelled to look at how you're receiving information, who you're associating with, your view of authority and leadership, and perhaps the Spirit is calling you to a different posture. Secondly, if we held up a picture of your life, what would you notice? Where is a story of God meeting you in your midst as you retain the story of God. Perhaps the Spirit of God is inviting you to retain and come alive underneath the story of who God is in a new, fresh way. Let me show you a picture. This photo is from our prayer walk that we took a couple of Wednesdays ago. And a group of us was walking around Grand Valley State University, praying for the students, the staff and administration. And as we were crossing over the sidewalk, I saw this bin. And if you take a closer look, if you expect it to be a trash bin, what you might see is food waste only. What do you expect? You expect to put trash here. But then what captured my attention were the words on the front said new soil (laughs) i said god is this not what you're doing in our midst what we deem to be refuse what we deem to be broken what looks like trash to us you come and you make it new you are renewal you are new soil and so we prayed to that end that God would do a new thing, not just at Grand Valley, but in our city and in our church. As we come to the table, we're reminded anew of Christ as the rededication of the temple. This is a place where God meets his creation every single week in these elements. We come to the table asking God to examine our hearts, as we prepare to receive freely this reminder of salvation secured in Jesus's body and blood. Note the promise he gives his sheep in John 10, 28. He said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. What good news. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So in receiving this meal, we proclaim the deity of Jesus and the security and power of his love for us as the temple of his body was destroyed and raised again. So it's in that spirit that we say, the Lord be with you. 
Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, church, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, we are joined by brothers and sisters across the world who are celebrating this meal as sheep in the flock of Jesus Christ. They're proclaiming with us the mystery of Jesus's death that can be summed up in three phrases as we say them together. That Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would descend on these elements now. May they be nourishment for us as we remember the story of who you are, God. Etch that story on our hearts afresh this morning. May we proclaim who you are, your son Jesus, as the rededicated temple, the evidence of who you are here on earth as you long to meet us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Church, receive who you are, the body of Christ.